thank you so much, Lawrence, for joining me today. I know we've been wanting to do this for a while and, uh, you know, happy we finally get to do this. There's a lot going on in, in, in the world right now and a lot of going on with impact investing as, as it sort of matures its, its own way here in, in the Western borough. But we kind of want to talk about the Eastern part of the world a little bit. So talk about your sort of journey in impact investing in China, in Taiwan, in sort of Southeast Asia in general. Give us sort of your, your career path and journey and what you're working on now. Thank you, Grant. Uh, thank you for having me. You know, I've been following you for quite a while now. I really appreciate all of the interviews you've done before and uh, really help me understand what everyone's been doing in the impact world. You know, as of me personally, I was born in Taiwan. Uh, not many people are super familiar with Taiwan. I think now we're known to be as the island that hosts this uh, company called TSMC, uh, making a bunch of uh, semiconductors. Um, also, you know, known to be kind of the area of conflict between China and the Taiwan Strait region. Um, but I was born here, you know, 41 years ago, and um, I moved to Canada when I was 11, and that's where I was uh, educated. 2005, I uh, went to Shanghai, and that's where I kicked off my my career in finance. Um, I did that for a few years. 2010, I went back to Taiwan and started my first business. Just because uh, aside from finance, uh, I really want to experience what it's like building a company from the beginning, from zero and ground up. So uh, I started a company with a friend. We did a consumer beverage. It was like a Red Bull product in Taiwan. Did that for a couple of years. The company got on track. Uh, and that's when I got into venture capital uh, for the next uh, 10 years or so until now. So that's a very, very quick overview as to uh, uh, what I did before this. 2019, uh, the idea of ESG really caught my attention because uh, it was a timing where I felt that business and investment and social good can really find a middle point. So I really looked, started looking into uh, ESG and climate technology uh, by the middle of uh, 2019. So at this point, I really want to go back a little bit and um, you know talk about why I really want to find the middle point between investment and uh, social good. Um, my family, uh, of course, was from Taiwan. My, my father was in the hotel business. And uh, when he retired in 2008 or so, he actually started a foundation and what that foundation did was uh, there's a city in Taiwan called Taitong. It's uh, by the eastern seaboard. It's actually where a lot of the aboriginals lived. It is a beautiful city, but it is actually a city that has been stricken by poverty for many years. So what my father did was uh, he established a foundation in Taitong. And the focus was to try to build its uh, tourism economy um, by introducing culture and art and upgrade its uh, hospitality industry in Taitong. After a little bit, he actually inherited a school from a religious um, institution. And basically what he did with the school was he tried to make it into a, a, a new experiment because, uh, you know, these kids from, uh, from the Aboriginal families, um, a lot of them were forced to take standardized tests um, and compete with the, the kids from the city side uh, for college enrollment. But usually if you're from a very poor family, it is a system that sets them up to fail. Sure. Yeah. Um, so what he did was uh, instead of putting the school in the regular education system, academic system, what he did was uh, experimented by teaching them, A, to be bilingual. So uh, imagine being in the poorest area um, in Taiwan, where, of course, Chinese is the mother tongue, but 
the most important curriculum is actually a second language as an English. Hmm. So the first requirement is not to learn. Of course, math is uh, important, but English is the most important because his belief is that if they're able to learn English, then their opportunities and their world really opens up uh, in the future. Right. They will not be confined to uh, their community and uh, forced to basically stay in their particular class for extended period of time. So he really encouraged English, he encouraged art and culture, he encouraged the kids to study the ecosystem in Taidong. And by doing this, you know, he really wants them to, to find uh, a confidence in their own community and two, for them to be able to work in their community in the future. And this in turn would help and support the local economy going forward. So he's been doing that for 13 years, 14 years or so. Wow. Wow. And um, because he was in the business society before, he is lucky to have a lot of sponsorship from major corporates across Taiwan. And so uh, that's a snapshot of my family story. Now, the, yeah. the reason why I, uh, I, I really wanted to find that middle point again between investment, business, as well as um, social impact is because I started my career in finance. I tried entrepreneurship and venture capital. But all along, you know, I've been trying to find that that crossroad where I could find some commonality with uh, with something my father has preached. Right. So 2019, when I discovered, hey, ESG, you know, it could be good for uh, the environment, it could be good for some of the social issues that we're seeing. I, uh, I really went all in and uh, tried to find uh, how we're able to better do this uh, from an uh, Asia perspective. I guess that would be a, a good place to start is, is, I guess, what did you find, right? When you sort of look deep into it, because um, there's a lot of sort of, you know, greenwashing around it. And I think I like to personally, I look at, and because I've been so disappointed about how ESG has started off, right? And it's kind of been around for a while, but I think I like to separate ESG from impact investing because I think they are a little bit two different things, just in my opinion. But I wanted to get your thoughts on what does impact investing look like from your lens? Like, what does it mean to you? Yeah. You know, we had a conversation last time how um, it's very funny because when I first started talking about uh, ESG with friends back in uh, 2019, I really had to explain and spell it out. What is E? What is S? What is G? Mm-hmm. And uh, why apparently it was supposed to be better than the general portfolio management. Um, until today, it's uh, it's really carrying a lot of uh, controversies around uh, right. how it's really managed and invested. Initially, I, I picked up ESG because I think it was relatively easier to explain to people than, say, impact investment or SDG. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you could just explain it through, you know, environment, social, and governance, it's yeah. easier to catch on than to go through the entire 17 categories sure. of SDG. <laughs> um, or impact investment, you know, what is it really? Is it philanthropy? Is it business? It, it, it's just much harder to explain all, all the other terms. So from a layman perspective, ESG was the easier way to come across it. But, you know, as the impact world develops, I think people have found different angles, whether it is through climate technology, whether it is through um, education and health tech, you could kind of bundle all of those together into impact investment as well. So for my sake, you know, it was easier to start with ESG and then to kind of dig into what we were able to do with it. Uh, but like you said, I think, uh, ESG is a, is a lazy way to go at it um, <laughs> from my perspective, but to really change the world and make an impact, I think, especially when I am a venture capitalist, I, I think uh, innovation, 
and technology will be the only way for, for us to 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 solve these issues that we're facing. When you look at you know making making investments and, and sort of what what round are you investing in? Is it early stage seed? Is it Series A? Like what? I guess when you look at companies, when do you like to look at them, um, and what are you looking for? Generically, my targets are companies in their pre-A stage uh, mm-hmm. to the A stage because you know there are, there are a lot of venture capitals out there with a lot of funding, especially in all the major hotspots like uh, U.S., Europe, different cities. Before I started going into this, I really tried to figure out where I come from could be value added to the entire ecosystem. Just to trying to get a share of the pie is not something I aim for. Um, so I really dug deep and. Uh, try to find out where Taiwan can become a value-added partner for all of the impact or climate technology innovators out there. So yeah, this is why I think if we're able to support a new team at the pre-A stage or a, a series A stage, we could really help a company grow from zero to one in their business cycle. When we talk about Taiwan for, for you know, obviously people who, for people who have been there and, you know, maybe a you know, a lot of people listen. I, I've personally never ever been there. I guess what what would you like to to tell people about Taiwan, possibly that they don't know? You know, maybe a lot of people listening or just in our networks understand Taiwan as sort of this semiconductor, you know, capital, right? And that's sort of what they're known for in the world right now. But take us on the ground there, and like, what are the innovations coming out of there? What are like the, the startups building, and, and what are some of the other things that uh, people might not be familiar of that that sort of Taiwan is sort of innovating in. Yeah, yeah, I know this might be the first time uh, investing in impact sound like a traveling show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the goal, man. Let's look. I want to take everybody everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so like we said earlier on, like I think Taiwan is known for semiconductor in a TSMC because they make virtually majority of the chipsets out there. But I would really call Taiwan as a, as, as a hidden gem. That is, of course, since last week, no longer hidden. Um, yeah. But just some interesting numbers. You know, Taiwan, it, it's a very small island right next to China. You know, size-wise, globally, it is ranked like 133rd or something. Ballpark the size of uh, Netherlands, where, where you are right yeah. now. In, in the U.S. perspective, it's about the size of Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, which would put us at the you know the bottom twenty percentile population wise. You know it's about uh, rank fifty seven, twenty three million, but the GDP ranking is at twenty first. So mm-hmm. wow. um, just below Switzerland and Netherlands. So uh, we're actually very similar, Netherlands and, and Taiwan. In yep. comparison to the U.S. perspective, um, the GDP is ballpark Pennsylvania, um, which is about six in the U.S. That's uh, in comparison. You know, t- again, to take us back into history, back in the 1980s, I'm not sure if you've seen this movie called uh, Armageddon. Of course. One of my uh, favorite Bruce movies. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The scene I, I will always remember is uh, they were on this uh, Russian uh, satellite and uh, they had to refuel. Yeah. Yep. And then the satellite kind of uh, started breaking down and this Russian astronaut was like, you know, American satellite, Russian satellite, everything's made in Taiwan. That, uh, <laughs> that really cracked us up back then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that movie was filmed in 1996, but that kind of explains a lot what Taiwan used to do back in 1980s and 1990s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we made a lot of uh, shoes, umbrella, um, shirts, 
in the 1990s, we made a lot of uh, technology-related components like uh, your Dell computers, your HP computers, your uh, LED monitors. And into the 2000s, we started making phones and uh, semiconductors. So if you look around your household, a bulk of your Apple products are made from Taiwan companies. Um, a lot of your Dell and HP computers are made by Taiwanese companies. A lot of the shirts from Nike, you know, sneakers from Puma, mm -hmm. it may say that it's made in Bangladesh or Vietnam, but a lot of these are also factories owned by Taiwanese companies. So, so they're owned by um, Taiwanese companies, but they're in sort of Vietnam or Bangladesh, but they're they might be owned by Thai, Taiwanese companies. Yes, gotcha. yes, yes. Gotcha. So um, because, you know, I guess for better or worse, a lot of these manual labor companies really have to go to where the infrastructure is becoming more mature, but the manual labor is cheaper. Still cheap, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, in the 90s, they were these factories were in China, but then going into the 2010s, uh, people started moving into Vietnam and Southeast Asia, different places. I'd like to really quick, really quick stay here for one second, because this is has been sort of a, a big topic for me just personally, right? Over over time is sort of the, the fashion industry, right? The apparel industry sort of, yep. for lack of a better term, you know, expo exploiting, you know, labor cost around the world to really you know boast their their margins and, and things like this, right? And it's it's a bit of a dirty business, you know, both environmentally and from a business perspective, a little bit. Yes. But how for, you know, obviously it creates jobs though, right? At the end of the day, that it does create jobs in Bangladesh, Vietnam, you know, Taiwan. But I guess, is there that same sort of conscious pull, you know, locally that, hey, this does create jobs, but it, it might not be as that simple, right? Because here in the US and Canada in, you know, pretty much most of us in the world, right? You, you do have sort of benefits, right? When you work for a company and it's, you know, you go in and you feel safe and you have these you know, time off. It, it, like there, there are benefits that come with it rather than, hey, we create a job for you. That's it. You should be happy with that. Like, you know, the, the world shouldn't get mad at certain things, but that industry is also very pollutive, right? The second largest carbon emitter behind you right. know, oil industry. So there is these this sort of human capital toll that is a bit, you know, disingenuous at times. And there's also the environmental toll that it takes, I guess, just from a person who's seen it from a bunch of different sides of, of the positive aspects of creating jobs and obviously the downstream effects of what that happens with, but then the, the sort of human cost and the environmental cost. How, how do you look at that? And maybe how do people, you know, locally look at that as well? It's really a balance, meaning that the bigger the company who makes these apparels, the more asset they will have to invest into equipments and mm -hmm. uh, benefits. It, it, it is not a zero or one where you are well managed and in a clean and good environment versus not at all. So I think the best thing is to be able to find a balance and an equilibrium on, on the scale. After all, you know, to be very honest, I think Nike's, uh, Adidas, all these brands, they have a certain margin requirement. Mm -hmm. So there's so much they could afford to pay for some of these items. So manufacturers, they have to uh, try to be able to find uh, ways to produce a profit 
uh, out of different situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest irony is, uh, you know, now the whole world is going uh, going green, essentially. You're asking for a lot of regulations in place. You're asking for a lot of submission of uh, whether it is carbon emission or different pollutant uh, statistics. But ultimately, for the entire supply chain, uh, the question is actually, so where is this money coming from? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, be- uh, because it has to come from somewhere. So today, unless um, Nike and Apple, these companies are willing to uh, reduce their margins or increase the prices, th- then the problem kind of falls on the, the manufacturers to find ways to make these happen. So it's, it's got to happen somewhere along this uh, a- along the supply chain stream. But ultimately, if you look at different factories and manufacturing facilities, uh, you can tell the differences in how they're managed just by looking at its uh, external covers. Uh, for example, the Foxconn's, Mm-hmm. Yeah, the 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 biggest player the biggest player who manufactures for Apple um their facility is extremely clean and automated there would not be any issues um there are other major apparel companies who produces for the Nikes and the Adidas they have uh, excellent standard and uh, excellent internal management to prevent any kind of uh, um, risk to to employees um some other plants. Now, who may not make for the major brand names, who may have, who may not have a major uh, certification system. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, they may produce at a much, much, much cheaper price, but they may not get orders from the uh, Fortune 500 brands. So there are relatively, I can't say, I can't say, um, perfect manufacturers for for the fashion apparel industry, especially at mass. Mm-hmm. Um, right. But we we could find uh, we could label it as tier one, tier two, and tier three players in terms of how how these are managed. There's there's a lot I want to stay on here with, but I don't want to get <laughs> too sort of off track and, and things like that. Uh, but maybe maybe we'll come, sort of come back to it. But I wanted to go back to to something you had said before in the '80s when you know Taiwan really started to make technology rather than or, or start to at least invest in the ability to to make um, technology. Was that a was that an outside business decision to invest in like Taiwan or was that, you know, government sort of funding innovation within the country? And I guess, how is it, is it now? Is it very similar where, you know, the government really reinvest into this, you know, technology innovation infrastructure, or is it, you know, outside money coming in, believing in, you know, the island and, and what it's produced before and continuing to support innovation through, through outside capital? Initially, uh, I actually think it was a lot of Japanese influence too back in the 80s. Yeah. Because yeah. Cause they've kind of, they uh, already had success with it a little bit, right? Or kind of They the did, they did. And, uh, and the human capital costs got much more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So because Taiwan has always had a good relationship with Japan, um, it was easy for them to outsource to a lot of the uh, Taiwanese manufacturers. Right. And then, of course, semiconductor, you know, Morris Chain kind of went from the U.S. Uh, the Taiwanese government invited Morris Chain to come to Taiwan to uh, to set up this uh, semiconductor uh, infrastructure and supply chain. And uh, that's how he started the TSMC uh, project in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, so back then, it was, yes, it was half-half. Part of it from the collaborations between companies uh, with Japanese companies and a part of it, government-induced technology introduction into Taiwan. Take this a, a step further. You know, how we're talking about where, where, where we could be, where we want to be a value-added player. You know, you were talking about apparel and technology 
And, you know, it's really interesting because uh, when we look at, you know, TechCrunch, a lot of these major tech medias, um, we see a lot of really awesome innovation coming out of um, the U.S. and the Europe. But one thing that I think that's more difficult, especially uh, this particular day and age, is that, you know, from a product innovation perspective, uh, to have an idea, to have a product, to have a pilot product and mm-hmm. to go commercial is, is a really long time. It, it, it's a really, really long cycle. It would be hard for you, for example, to actually see what an apparel manufacturing facility is like. It's hard for uh, a team in, say, Boston to see what uh, a tech manufacturing facility looks like. But this is why we really, uh, you know, someday if you have the time, you know, come visit us at Taiwan. (laughs) Um, It'll be a very quick train ride, you know, from north to south. Again, size of Maryland. Yeah. Um, It's a two-hour train ride from the northern tip to the southern tip. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, in between, you can find companies and facilities that can make virtually everything you're looking for. It's no joke. I, I recently found out, actually, that, you know, uh, when, when Tesla started back in 2003, two years after their inauguration, their, their uh, supply chain team actually came to Taiwan in 2005. For the initial roaster uh, model, ballpark, uh, 30 to 40% of the components were made by a Taiwanese company. And they did that because, A, uh, the quality is pretty good. The price is not crazy expensive. The minimum order is is reasonable and uh the uh, factory owners are very flexible as to what they're able to make. And, uh, and then going forward, um, up to as much as 75% of the Tesla components came from Taiwanese company. So uh, ideas like this is something we think we can uh, really help a new startup team streamline their, their supply chain. The VC I worked with back in 2012, they uh, they really helped uh, Lei Jun, the founder of uh, Xiaomi, the cell phone uh, brand in China. Mm-hmm. When he wanted to do the cell phone brand, uh, he could not find the factory who would work with them because uh, the, it, it was it was hard to find for a first time founder to find a, a complete supply chain who he could work with and uh, we helped him uh, going north to south in Taiwan find the right manufacturers for him to make his first phone hmm. so ideas like this is uh, something that uh, I really like to you know share with you and friends out there that hey if you want to make something uh, chances are you know we could probably make it for you here <laughs> 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 and, uh, and and yeah, you know, this is why I think uh, when we're talking about, you know, we're investing into the pre-A stage, into the series A stage. And the reason why I pinpoint this particular area is because I think this is a time when uh, when you're trying to scale a product and find product market fit, having the right supplier, having the right supply yeah. chain and understanding what's the right cost and finding out what is the necessary price point to hit in order to scale and go commercial is uh, it could actually be very helpful for uh, for a startup or a new or a new company. And this is where this is ultimately the reason why. You know, we want to do a series uh, pre-A or series A investment into companies where we could be helpful to. To me, it's my favorite stage to look at and, and assess and be involved in or uh, help out in any way. Just because I think it's it's in that you're still kind of in that you're past sort of ideation stage, but you're still in that you're very you can be very creative and a little bit more nimble. You can move fast and sort of break things, right? The the traditional sort of adage. You're still early on where you can you can still make a couple mistakes because you're sort of innovating so fast and you want to try to make. I think going 
going from, like you said, that zero, zero to one, it's just a, I think it's just a fun place to be in. Uh, yeah. And so I really like that stage, you know, success and failure at that stage really hinders on partners you have at that such that exactly. early stage, right? That to me, it's such a, it's such a crucial element to it. And, you know, a wrong partner can be, unfortunately, the demise of, of somebody's, you know, dream, you know, product or company, right? It, it really can right, go right, sideways right. quite fast. So I guess when, when you look at founders or, or companies that you have, you know, invested in, what if you want to just, if you can, you know, talk about maybe a little bit of the portfolio of, of what you're excited about that you've seen that you're, that you sort of invested in or, or thinking of investing in, whether it's a, you know, a physical product or a technology product and whatever theme it might be in, but maybe just, just walk us through some exciting uh, startups or initiatives you see out there. Just to share a few examples as to uh, some partners I'm working with, um, looking at new technologies, uh, for example, as you mentioned, uh, apparel, that is a major industry yeah. that, yeah. Uh, that needs to be improved in a way. So uh, one of the partner of ours, he sells to, uh, he makes apparel for a lot of the major global brands out there. What we're doing right now is trying to find different material uh, innovators out there, um, right. whether they can make biodegradable uh, fabric, whether they can make you know recyclable uh, fabric. All of these are things that we're, we're looking at. We also have some in-house R&D, um, testing new concepts, uh, but again, this is definitely the direction that we're going to. And uh, I know uh, all of the brands, all of the apparel manufacturers are are looking at. So this is one innovation that we are particularly interested in. Another one is uh, packaging material innovation. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Taiwan companies, we ship a lot of uh, computers, television yep. sets, um, scooters, uh, bicycles, all kinds of stuff. And uh, all of these large items usually are shipped with uh, a lot of packaging material, more likely than not overpackaged uh, for the safety of it, and more likely or not before it was mostly in styrofoam, which is market tested to be one of the most annoying material, packaging material <laughs> uh, one could experience when you, when you unbox uh, an item coming into mail. I personally hate it. it. It's all over the place. I have to use a vacuum cleaner to clean my, my living room after that. So we have Intel saying that, hey, a lot of the, the US and European customers um, they are asking all of the manufacturers and suppliers to upgrade their, their packaging material, each A, more eco-friendly, and two, more customer-friendly materials. So this is also an area we're looking very closely into as to how to replace different kinds of materials, whether it is for heavy electronics or it is as small as the food packaging or um, something you would pick up at a convenience store. You no, know, real, real quick, just going back on the, the, the apparel and sort of fashion side yeah. of things, there's a lot of waste in the world, right? There, yes. There's a lot of garbage uh, that, whether landfill or oceans, whatever it may be. I love the idea, and there's a lot of companies doing this in, um, in the West, and I'm sure there's some uh, in the East as well. Essentially, you know, taking waste out the landfill or out the ocean uh, and turning that into fabric. And, and that being sort of this regenerative ecosystem of, of a lifespan of, of products somehow. And I know there's there's obviously a lot more difficulty going into that, but since the infrastructure is kind of set up, you know, for decades of, of Taiwan investment into sort of infrastructure, of, you know, creating technology, physical, maybe products, is there a way to not change anything, but let's say if a, a factory wants to get into this, 
can they sort of reuse some of the infrastructure that they've already built over time and transition into, hey, we once did such and such, right? But now we're set up to, you know, turn waste into fabric. Is that possible to do with current infrastructure or or would, you know, a business have to truly invest from the ground up to, to do something along those lines? I, I think it's a complete shift in commerce, commercial paradigm. Yeah. Uh, meaning that, you know, I, I think there are a few components. Uh, a, uh, putting the idea into consumers' mindset, uh, that's, of course, step number one. Step number two will be how you're able to take a material, uh, take it back, and what do you do with it? So an idea is, you know, today, can an article of clothing be truly recyclable? Mm-hmm. The complication is similar to metal because today it's easy to recycle, say, a, a single uh, metal material like gold, silver, aluminum. But for composites, that becomes almost impossible at this point. Right. For for apparel, similar to that, um, if it's mono material, it's relatively easy to recycle and to be able to melt it back down into a single material and to reuse that into a new piece of uh, apparel. But if it is synthetic, then that part also gets more complicated. Yeah, that means if it's, yeah. let's say, like, let's see plastic, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, pla- there's a couple, I, I think uh, Adidas works with, with Parley to sort of, you know, Parley is a nonprofit. They take plastic out the ocean and then I'm not sure the exact infrastructure they have, but then Adidas uses this and turns that into fabric for their Parley line. And it's shoes, it's, you know, obviously shorts, it's jackets, it's basically the, the, the plastic that they pull out of the ocean can make a finite of this sort of material for, for so long an amount of time, right? To me, that that is the first, to me, evolution of, of how we can sort of transition this massive global uh, sector yes. of our economy and try to have a regenerative aspect to it in, in some way, right? That, that is sort of positive across the, the supply chain. Then obviously the goal would be to, to you know, you, you get all the waste out of the ocean, then you have to, you know, find somewhere else to go to, to get that sort of waste. But I think that'll always be there. There'll always be waste in the supply chain that can be sort of upcycled in, in some way. Right. So uh, this is actually very interesting. We're, we're, we're going all over the place, but this is so much fun. So <laughs> I actually know a company here uh, and what they do is they purchase recycled PET bottles mm-hmm. and they turn that into material, into polymers that um, apparel companies can use to make yep. uh, articles of clothing. Right? That is perfectly doable. Now, the issue with that is the, the bottle you recycle are actually graded into, again, tier one, tier two, tier threes. Yep. So the bottles they buy from Japan are completely clean. They are awesome bottles to recycle and turn back into apparel. But the bottle you may find from, say, India or rural areas gotcha. from China, gotcha. uh, that may not meet the standard of the uh, major brand names. So that gets downcycled. So how these bottles are recycled, how these are categorized and cleaned really matters as well. Yeah, so that's uh, on the bottle to um, apparel side. But once that's made into apparel, the question becomes, what becomes that piece of clothing after it gets worn out? Yeah, and the end of life right. is the is the hardest thing. To, yeah, can can we figure can out that, you know uh, t-shirts that's made from PET bottle mm-hmm. and then do something with it, or does that get downcycled? Right. 
Yeah. So that eventually, becomes eventually it ends up back where it came from, right? It's like yes, oh. we're just extending the we're extending its life, lifetime, but then the ultimate application should be that everything should be upcycled or uh, perennially used be in the system. So I think these are the two challenges. A, being that bottle is actually tiered into you know clean bottles and not clean bottles. And, uh, and then what happens after that piece of clothing is worn out. I want to jump to, to something else uh, as well here. How does, I guess, your relationship the last say five years been around like climate? How, like how does Taiwan look at this? How does you know, other regions, maybe in, in, in Asia in general, look at this because it's always this conundrum, right? It's like, hey, we're developing economies, growing economies. And then you have sort of the matured economies telling the world that they have to, they can't, you can't do the same thing we did, right? You can't scale your economies uh, like we did through just mass consumerism, mass manufacturing, right? But it, it, it's hard to tell other companies trying to do the same sort of thing that, you know, let's just say the U.S. did, but now they have all these climate restrictions, right, where maybe mature economies can afford to do these things, like you said, with with these sort of certifications around the manufacturing, who's that's going to fall on? Somebody has to pay for it to be certified and all these things. I guess, how, how do you, how does like Taiwan, let's just say, for example, look at climate, that shift in philosophy around the globe, around how we're dealing with climate? How do they look at it and, and do they deal with anything specific? Obviously, being an island, there's going to be some dynamics there that, that they might have to deal with now or in the future. Um, I, I think people in Taiwan uh, are generally concerned about the situation. But of course, uh, from my perspective, more could be done. Um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of companies uh, over the past uh, couple of years, and uh, most of them uh, are actually developing this uh, sustainable strategy. But Ultimately, how much of that is self-awareness and how much of it is uh, enforced by their supply chain? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mm-hmm. we'll never find out. Right? Yeah. Uh, essentially, Apple is telling Foxconn to uh, get your green act together. Otherwise, we'll, uh, sure. you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have penalties here and there. Uh, likewise, with Nike and all these other major players. So that is indeed happening. Um, but like you said, Foxconn can afford that, right? They can afford to probably make that transition. You know, they, they can, they can, but they still really, they, they really have to find ways to do the right thing and produce a similar profit for their shareholders as well. Right. I, I think that's the biggest challenge. So one of the companies I invested into earlier on is this company uh, that's based in China um, who makes a carbon nanotube. It's a battery material, and uh, they sell it to all the major battery manufacturers. And the reason why we liked that company before is uh, uh, it, it is a replacement for carbon black, um, which is another battery material that's traditionally used. Mm-hmm. Um, so the nanotube could replace the carbon black because it has better conductivity for heat and power. Uh, the reason why I feel like they could do well back in 2014 uh, is because you know, Apple and Samsung, all these major brandings, they're asking all the battery manufacturers to put more into R&D and give them a minimum additional 10% more charge uh, per annum. Mm -hmm. So all these manufacturers are forced to basically brainstorm ways to increase their their, their power capacity 10%, which is quite a bit, especially given how mature the technology is. But all of this needs to be done at the same price or a lower price. So the story of that is, you know, ideally, we all want something better. We all want something greener, but at a lower price. <laughs> Which is, there has <laughs> right. to, somebody has to make 
sacrifices, right? It, it's exactly. got to be the consumer. It's got to be these large global companies. Like somebody has to sacrifice somewheres, right? Or not exactly. going to get exactly. that. So, so, but that that's the conundrum, right? You know, uh, if you're the customer, if you're the consumer, if you are the brand holder, this is what you want, something better at a lower price. But ultimately the solution will come from technology innovation. Yeah. We'll need to come from new materials. What we have proven is that we're able to take the pricing of a solar panel down by 90% over the past 10 years. Right. Which is this, an incredible thing. This is, I mean, this is what happens with TVs, phones. I mean, <laughs> remember plasma TVs were like 10 grand a piece when they came out. And now, you know, they're, you know, $200 you can get, you know, get like a, a you know, four or 500 bucks. So like, and if the same with with phones, right? I mean, this this is sort of the natural evolution of innovation and, and competitiveness. And over time, these things will go down. Again, those were in a world where climate wasn't involved, right? That, that wasn't a part of the equation. It was move fast, innovate at whatever cost, extract from the earth to make these things fast, to make these things cheap. That seems to be a different world we might live in now where that transition... There, there needs to be a different thought process because it, it has to be less extractive, most likely, or extract better. Uh, there's just, uh, I interviewed a cool company that is, uh, they're basically building the next generation of mining, right? right. And mining is very extractive. It's very antiquated. It's just, it, it's really old school, right? How, how they do it. And they say part of making mining much more sustainable and climate friendly is just nowhere to mine, better right like we, we don't have to just kind of dig and hope something's there we can use technology yep. to actually basically place more educated bets on where to actually start to drill or yep. mine for for whatever natural resource it might be this was talking about basically uh, mining for materials for electric cars right we can, we can yep. make all the electric cars you want but if we need batteries to to fuel you know to basically be the fuel for them and that's a, a process that maybe climate friendly people don't want to necessarily talk about too much because it is a very extractive right now you know it's it's still a little bit dirty but eventually that will innovate right we will we will use yes. technology to mine better to be much more cleaner about mining the materials to make the batteries that is going to go into you know, billions of, you know, billion electric cars, right? That, that's going to happen. It's just, how do we get there? Do we do it effectively? How do we balance innovation and investment well enough? Because, you know, doing it the old extractive way might not be as pop, might not be possible going forward with sort of all the philosophy changes around climate. I will let you go now since I, I rambled on a bit there. You go. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's awesome. Um, indeed, I think um, I, I am a firm believer that uh, technology will uh, will be able to solve most of our problems. It may also create new problems, but then, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> but then, like you said, you know, people in Asia, I think all of the world, especially this year, they really feel the brunt of climate change. Too many issues to solve, but ultimately, it will come down to where our technology and uh, innovation could lead us, right? And uh, but like we also talked about, for a new innovation to go from lab, uh, lab mm -hmm. tests already into commercialization, it's such a long way. And um, if today, you know, our position in in Taiwan, in uh, in Asia, could help shorten that cycle and help bring a good innovation, a great product uh, into the market at the right price point, that would be beneficial to everyone, I believe. What's always merged, you know, our two sides of the world is you know, making incredible products at an affordable price for 
the consumer habits of of the West, right? That that's always been a great a great merge between you know our societies, and we'll end sort of on <laughs> not not necessarily like what could prevent us from from having this you know future that that we want you know still have innovation and products, but be much more climate friendly, human friendly, perhaps. What could what is going to pre- what could prevent that from happening? Because we, we just we always see the this pitter patter of words uh, going on between the U.S. and China over Taiwan, right? It, it's sort of this you know it's this little island that punches above its weight a lot, right? I mean it, it, it's it's at the it's at the center of of the world in a lot of different ways, and it, it seems like Taiwan is investing in the U.S. as well. I believe uh, Taiwan Semi is building production facilities in the US. And so it, it it seems like they they want to align with the US on some things or just consumers in general, right? They know that consumerism will power sort of the economy for for the island and they need to have that. But then also broader Asia is a massive, massive economy. Do they are they building semiconductor facilities in other parts of Asia? Um, and I guess how do they hedge the geopolitics of US and, and China and just kind of it seems like they're just like we're kind of here to just do what we want to do, like make great great products and, and sort of innovate and, and be a be a fledgling society for for the next generations to come. Yet you have these two global powers kind of like not speaking for them, right? But kind of like delaying a lot of of what they want to do. So I'll let you take it from there. And yeah, you know, I, I, it's so hard to look ahead, even. By five to ten months. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> well, yeah, we can know, say twelve I, months. Let's just say twelve yeah, months, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, no, Taiwan is building out facility. TSMC is investing uh, in the U.S., um, but TSMC also has investments uh, in China. You know, just to put the geopolitical issue into perspective, like we talked about, you know, I think it, many things will change in the next six, six months or so. But right now, I think. Um, it, it is hard for anyone to predict what's going to happen. Not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, I, I actually live in Shanghai on a more full-time basis. Yep. Uh, made many friends there. And uh, my wife is a, is a mainland Chinese um, national. Uh, you know, there are so many brilliant people, brilliant innovators in China. And this is also why I want to put myself uh, in Shanghai as well, just because we, we see so many uh, amazing people on, on that land. Um, that's beyond politics. Of course. So, yeah, you know, today... That's today, everywhere, right? I mean, it's... It, it is, it is. It, it, it's hard to categorize a person just by uh, their passport. So yep. um, by being in, in Shanghai, looking around, we see cutting edge innovation in, say, the, you know, hydrogen technology and nuclear technology. Yeah. Um, of course, EV penetration is by far the BYDs are, are um, superb EV manufacturers mm-hmm. um, that's already been tested. Personally, you know, despite this geopolitical tension, I think if, if we are to uh, fix a planet or at least make it a little bit better, it, it will take the entire village, and this village is called Earth. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a saying that, hey, you know, Chinese uh, manufacturers really sabotage prices for the solar panels. Hmm. Um, yes, that's true. Um, and it actually murdered a lot of companies in the U.S. and Taiwan and uh, different places. But it is also because of their involvement that the price point of solar panels can be so cheap at this mm-hmm. point, And the deployment could be so ubiquitous. I'm not trying to predict where geopolitically where everything will be. Taiwan will continue to excel where 
what where it does well, which is uh, manufacture. It will be able to manufacture a lot of high tech. Uh, products, a lot of the high-tech components. If we can build most of the Tesla components in mm-hmm. 2005, we will also be able to build many of the newer versions of technology, whatever version that may come. At the same time, we'll be very efficient building the basic stuff as well, uh, from the Nikes and Adidas to the Puma and Reeboks. I, I do expect that Taiwan will be at the forefront of manufacturing, uh, manage these companies well, manage these factory conditions well at a globally acceptable standard in various regions, and uh, will continue to implement new technologies. And this is where, um, as venture capitalists, and hopefully, and uh, uh, with friends from all over the world, that we can uh, find the best technologies and uh, bring these elements into the manufacturing part of the equation. When you were in how long have you been in Taiwan for now? Did you go there because Shanghai was kind of on this on and off lockdown for a while? You just like, I need some stability a little bit. Is that why you went to Taiwan for a little bit? And, and I guess, how is it now in Shanghai when you talk to you know friends over there? Oh, I was I was there in the lockdown. I was yeah, uh, no, I yeah, I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I was home happily with my wife for for sixty days straight, and uh, no <laughs> argument, no conflict. You stay, you stayed married, man. Congratulations! <laughs> yeah, Congratulations. Right, that's awesome. That, that's a huge testament to uh, to both of us. <laughs> you can get through anything now. Yeah, no, I I came back because uh, uh, well, my family's here, and uh, it's been a year and a half since I last came back to Taiwan, and. Uh, I really want to understand, and again, I get an update on where each company from different industries, where they're at in terms of their sustainability strategy and, and R&D. It's, it's been fascinating to me to learn, um, you know, different companies are uh, do, do have innovations in, in different products and materials, but, you know, are relatively low key about it. And mm. uh, I, I really want to, you know, like I said earlier on, Taiwan is a hidden gem uh, that may no, no longer be hidden, but a lot of the technology, a lot of the things I think uh, that is worth sharing uh, that may be beneficial to um, friends or partners out there. Um, I think this is something that I would love to share as well. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, going to businesses, talking about sustainability um, and what that sort of means. The business community there look at it as a real growth opportunity and the real next stage of innovation, or is it is it a burden? Like, I, I guess, how do they balance this transition to sustainability and having to think more about that as they they innovate products and manufacturing? In general, I, I think people feel like it is a must Mm-hmm. Um, but the challenge is also how to, uh, a- as the same for everybody else, uh, how to strike the right balance between corporate profit and sustainability. Yeah. And this is why, uh, again, going back like a broken recorder, like technology is so important because this may be the only way. But what's encouraging is that uh, I do see some R&D research into a variety of uh, components. So, uh, for example, I was speaking to the chairman of the cement company, and they are putting in quite a bit of resources researching uh, carbon-free and uh, uh, carbon storage uh, cement. And uh, now they're finding the equilibrium between um, the force that cement is able to 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 to, to handle. So, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of startups in the U.S. doing something similar, but we're also seeing major corporations in Taiwan putting in R&D into this area as well. Um, also, I see steel companies putting uh, investments into uh, wind turbines, solar uh, systems to uh, help reduce their uh, their energy 
usage. We're also seeing food companies trying to promote more more vegan diet. Uh, Taiwan has some of the highest uh, vegan diet uh, usage in huh. the entire world because of uh, religious reasons. Uh, mm. Buddhism is uh, right. is extremely highly penetrated in Taiwan. So uh, for this, you know, the, the vegan restaurants actually one of some of the highest, uh, the most popular restaurants in Taiwan. Many of them are of vegan nature. So. So yeah, we're we're seeing a lot of companies trying to promote new ideas, putting money into R and D. But ultimately, again, once you have the product available, all the companies will go, will go through the same thing: is uh, how <laughs> what is the price that our customers are willing to pay for this new material? That's always going to be the challenge. <laughs> I uh, I took a uh, like a international like religion course in college. Buddhism was the one that like really stuck out to me like a lot. And I, uh, there was one, it stuck with me this whole time. There was one, I don't know if it was like a quote, I don't know what you necessarily call it, but it, you know, it was kind of just like this, this, not a scripture or anything, but it was just like the, this, this sentence that really stuck with me. And it says, you know, basically we're all rivers that lead to, to one ocean. Right. And it's basically, right. you, you sort of find your, we all find our path, but we're all sort of heading, you know, to the same space. You know, which is, you know, the yeah. ocean is, is essentially your, your bliss, right? Your, your, your certain right. journey where it all ends. Right. But we all take different paths to get there. And I was like, God damn, that was like, I was like, that was super profound to me. I actually started a, a fashion company called Rivers to Ocean for like a, a brief time, just because it was like, it, I was like, I need to find something to like incorporate this in. Right. I was like, so I made like these polo shirts or something it was really it was like it was cool but i was like it was such a profound like statement to me and i was like this this is it kind of encapsulates everything right and i always so anything i try to do right and whether it's business or in life it's like how do we how do we bring that into just everything that we that we do and i never understood how you know we could there's all this just the saying right um you know you really you kind of screw people over sometimes. And specifically in business, a lot of people screw people over, even their family, close friends or whatever. And then it's always at the end. It's nothing personal. It's just business. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, why does it, why is it like that? Right. We sort of, we sort of uphold people and, and pat them on the back for being savvy businessmen or businesswomen, whatever it may be. And that word savvy business, it's also, it's just like, they do a really good job of like screwing people over that's sort of the underlining thing of it, right? So they're a good savvy business person, not personal, just, just business. It's like, yeah, but like that family is like destroyed now, right? Or that local economy is like completely destroyed and like lives are like, will never be the same. But if it's just business, then it's like, so I've kind of always been reluctant, you know, growing up, I was really reluctant to the business side of things because how it, you know, how I've traditionally looked at it and seen it and how it's affected uh, my family and community. And so I was like, how could we, and it set me on a path down cause ours really was like, how can we have business really be positive force for society and, and for now for the earth, right? That, that is sort of being uh, a mantra that's, that's high level. There has to be a different way to do business. It can't, it can't just be, oh, it's, that's just business. Don't take it personally. Well, how can it not be personally? <laughs> right? Right. Right, right, Dedicate right. your life to something like that is the most personal thing, right? It's crazy. And especially when it affects everybody's lives so much. It is personal, you know, so uh, I know that's a tangent again there, but like I, I do find it that I think it is a bit refreshing that we're all kind of taking this different lens 
and look at the approach to business and what it means to be in business and, and to work with with fellow members of society and, and how to do it better, right? That that's just the thought. But anyway, it goes back to that statement of just uh, raw rivers just going to ocean. I thought that was just so great, and it sort of it really has aligned me to a lot of what what I try to do. Yeah, that's that's awesome. You know, I, I, this brings me to another thing I I really want to do and promote. You know, it, it's the idea of sustainable impact. The reason why I really want to find that middle point between um, business investment and uh, social good is uh, because, for example, we see a lot of the charities, they're out raising money, trying to support their own operation. Some mm-hmm. do well, some uh, have a harder time. And most of these businesses take the hardest hit when say the stock market goes bad uh, or there's a recession. But ultimately, you know, kind of like what Uncle Ben said, right? You know, it's only when you have power, you have the ability to be responsible. <laughs> yeah. Right? If you don't have power, then then it's harder for you to choose which path you want to mm, uh, embark right. on. So uh, the idea of blending uh, business and philanthropy um, and social good really comes down to how to make impact sustainable. And uh this is why only if a impact product, impact model, and impact businesses that could be scaled and commercialized uh, where they can find sustainability and be a consistent contributor to, to the problems. That was a, a big question I, when I talked to you know founders and, and startups and just people in general around sustainability or impact. And it's all, I think it's all, it's really, really doable at a very, very high level at an early stage, like you can really develop and create a fascinating, sustainable and impact product, business model, whatever it may be. The issue is, is when, how do you scale it? How do you scale impact? That's very difficult because the the, the crappiest example, I always, it's a good example, but it's crappy how it ended up is like Tom's, right? Tom's Shoes had a great business model for like being like a really small company, right? But as they scaled, all of a sudden, there were so many, their impact model became almost a burden to not only them as a company, but to societies and the communities that they were giving shoes to. And, uh, and so it's, it's really hard to, it still is today, today, I think, and technology is a little different because it's not a physical product, but scaling, you know, impact and sustainability, I think is still a, it's still a hurdle that I think we have to think about. Um, as consumers or as investors um, like you, it, when you scale, can you still keep the sustainability aspect of it or the, imp- the social right, right. impact behind it? To me, that's a challenge that I think is very difficult. And we have to, that's the next stage of figuring this thing out. Right. Let me, let me share something with you that I found really interesting. So a lot of people ask me that what I consider as uh, as the most impactful company in uh in, in China per se, and uh, my answer back then was Alibaba. So there was a study, and uh, I forgot the exact number, but uh, there's a term called uh, Taobao Village, meaning that um, these extremely poor, poverty-stricken areas would make X amount of revenue from the uh, uh, e-commerce platform Alibaba provided. Mm-hmm. And uh, all Alibaba need to do is to, you know, put in 
an, an ad or a special section where you could support product from these areas. Mm-hmm. And that would generate millions of revenue uh, for these villagers. They may make handicraft, they may produce yep. some kind of a food and food or produce. A simple action just by putting an ad onto the front page, which yep. costs Alibaba essentially nothing, right? It may be like five seconds of something, but that five second could give a single village a, a perhaps an annual revenue of X dollars that could support many, many families. So that's one example. Another example is uh, uh, my cousin, he actually owns a, a restaurant chain in uh, in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And something he, uh, the reason why he he did he he started a restaurant is because uh, he wanted to support again people in poverty and uh, want to have the platform that enables them to have a decent income to raise a family and food and beverage is uh, the best model for that because you don't need a college degree to be great at food and beverage mm-hmm. you need mm-hmm. passion you need uh, to work hard you have to refine your skill and, and skill sets. As long as you work hard, you can find economic benefit coming out of the system. You know, he he was able to through that model. He gave him very very good bonuses, a great training program, and uh, he was able to impact uh, many families from that. Personally, I invested into another food franchise in China. It is a very small store, kind of like a, a KFC Mini. It's a yeah. fried yeah, food yeah, yeah. Uh, franchisable, and uh, that brand had. Uh, I, I invested end of twenty eighteen. From store one, and uh, today they have more than a thousand in operation. Uh, mostly franchisees. They have uh, another thousand signed uh, in line, ready to open. And at this scale, now we're talking about he's able to support people in uh, the tier seven cities in China. How um, somebody with no economic background can start a small store, can make a decent income, and feed their families and mm-hmm. put their kids through school. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's uh, whether you go with impact first and the scale second, right? Or you go with scale first or impact second. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think both are the right pathways. I would, yeah. I guess with scale, you can develop this is the the impact right a little bit if you think about it from from that point of view. Right. So if you're uh, if if this is something that uh, a, a business owner or an entrepreneur wants to do from the start, again, it's not like a zero or one situation where you have to be all business or all impact. But you could find a certain point that is in the middle, um, something you're comfortable with, and uh, and just go from there, whichever way that suits you best and that could maximize impact. Well, amazing, my brother. Thank you so much for for taking the time. Um, I know when we have our conversations, we, we tend to go a little long. I'm glad we got to put this recording on it. Um, but I love when we have our conversations, man. I, I love what you're up to. and I love your your philosophy and the way you think about things. And, you know, you're just such an interesting part of the world where, you know, I think that there's there's so much, so much innovation and, and ideas. And it's just great to hear your perspective and your point of view. And, you know, best of luck, obviously, for for the next year. But hopefully we can catch up again sometime next year, you know, check in on everything. Enjoy the rest of your, uh, your time in Taiwan and, you know, best of luck to, to you and, and the investments you're, you're going to make going forward. Uh, just always appreciate your time, man. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. You know, if you have 
ever have a chance to come to Asia um, yeah. this year or next. Yep. Um, I'm planning on it. Drop, I'm definitely planning drop on it. Drop in and, uh, you know, again, within a two hour train ride, I can show you an apparel factory, what it looks like, a shoe factory, what it looks like, <laughs> but whatever you want to see. I can show you a cement yeah. plant, a steel factory. It's, uh, it's all within driving distance. Amazing, man. Uh, I'm going to take you up on that. So, uh, so, so it'll happen. It'll happen. And we'll do another episode when I'm there. <laughs> Make sure it does. All right, brother. We'll have a great day. All right, great. Appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. We'll talk soon.